This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Hello, and welcome to Nursing World Shared Practice Forums. My name is Dr. Michelle DeGrazia. I am the Director of Nursing Research for the Newborn Intensive Care Unit at Boston Children's Hospital. We are very pleased to welcome Dr. Kathleen White. Dr. White directs the Master of Science in Nursing Entry into Nursing Program at Johns Hopkins School of Nursing. She previously served as a Senior Advisor to the Center for Health Workforce Analysis the Division of Nursing, and the Office of Performance Management in the Bureau of Health Professions at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services in the Health Resources and Services Administration from 2010 to 2013. Dr. White maintains a joint appointment as a clinical nurse specialist at Johns Hopkins Hospital, where she is a member of the Evidence-Based Practice Steering Committee and an original part of the Collaborative School of Nursing Johns Hopkins Hospital team that developed the widely published, award-winning Johns Hopkins Nursing Evidence-Based Practice Model and Guidelines. Her numerous practice leadership roles have included consulting with Parkway Group Healthcare in Singapore and the Primary Healthcare Reform Project in Armenia, serving as visiting faculty at the American University of Armenia as a member of the Hopkins Healthways Advisory Group and as chairperson of the American Nursing Association Congress on Nursing Practice and Economics from 2006 to 2010. Dr. White, welcome. Thank you. Uh, it's really great to be here, and I'm happy to uh, talk about evidence-based practice to your audience. So we were wondering, um, to begin, if you could talk a little bit about what led you to become interested in evidence-based practice. When I went to work at uh, Johns Hopkins uh, in actually uh, 1999, I had come out of a director for case management position, and I had an opportunity to work at Hopkins Hospital as a faculty member by joining um, an outcomes management committee that they had. And we reviewed cost, outcomes, uh, did a little work with clinical pathways, and it kind of led us into questioning whether or not we were, um, you know, meeting the um, the outcomes that we wanted to, uh, whether we our protocols and policies were uh, following, um, you know, the way uh, the evidence, if you will, and we were wondering or not whether um, our practice was what it really needed to be. There was a big push for um, improvement in outcomes and quality at that point in time. It started the movement, and so um, we. Uh, kind of a dilemma that Hopkins uh, Department of Nursing had was um, what to do. You know, how could we make sure that the outcomes that staff were achieving were the best possible? And so um, we started to think about a really big push for an evidence base to both practice in medicine and in nursing. And so uh, our staff uh, said, well, you know, maybe it's time for us to look at, you know, what the models are that are out there uh, and, you know, start to think about how we could improve practice by uh, implementing um, more current evidence. There were probably, I'm going to say about five or six that we reviewed. We actually set out to adopt a model. So um, as we involved our staff in looking at each one, 
there was each model that was in existence really um, had some issue for our staff mm -hmm. as we presented it to them because our goal was to make sure that the bedside nurse was going to be able to have an evidence-based practice and use whatever uh, skills and knowledge we were going to um, facilitate. So we sat down. It was uh, three leaders from Johns Hopkins Hospital, two from Johns Hopkins School of Nursing, uh, and started to develop uh, first goals for uh, infusing an evidence-based practice foundation for the Department of Nursing. Uh, then we looked at what our, you know, kind of beliefs and assumptions were. Uh, we, as I mentioned, we uh, reviewed those other uh, models, and so we looked at what the levels of evidence were, what the steps that each of those models included. And we started to outline a process that we thought um, our staff would be able to use. And so um, what became really exciting is as this process developed, it kind of turned into a model, which, as I said, we had set out to adopt one, not one that we wanted to um, to really develop. And so uh, the leadership team put it together, and we decided, well, if we were going to have a model, uh, you know, uh, research and our backgrounds demanded that we test it. So uh, we put together a definition, we put together the model, the steps, uh, and set out to test what we thought would be a practical model for that bedside nurse to um, to implement. And one key part to us and the reason why it's called the Johns Hopkins practice um, model and guidelines, is that we didn't stop with de developing a model and assumptions. We actually developed um, 18 at the time. Now we have 19 guidelines that really assist the nurse in knowing what the next step and what they need to do in the process of trying to first identify a practice question, evaluate the evidence, and then translate um, whatever recommendations they might have from that evaluation of the evidence into their practice. We developed a lot of forms. Um, I'm going to say, I think there's about a dozen of them uh, that the staff can use that um, remind them um, of, of ways of dealing with, uh, for instance, evaluation of research um, evidence. So they look at an article and they think, you know, the first thing is, well, what is it that I have to evaluate? What do I have to do here? And so our forms look at, uh, remind them to consider things like the sample size, mm -hmm. the design of the research, the, um, you know, is there any manipulation or bias or control, you know, in the study. Um, and so we have that for both review of scientific evidence and for non-scientific evidence. So it makes their uh, job a little easier and uh, is something that can uh, practically be used by um, staff nurses. It is quite a complex process. Um, it's, I think, uh, surprisingly so when you get involved and you really look at what it, what you're trying to achieve. You don't want to stop too soon. You want to look at all the evidence. Mm -hmm. And um, in terms of models, we've had a very similar experience here at Boston Children's. We'd like to stop now and ask our colleagues around the world a question. In your answer, could you first please state your city and country location? The question is this. Could you please provide what key strategies you have used to create an evidence-based practice environment in your workplace? So, Kathy, could you describe to us what your model looks like? Uh, the model is first a conceptual model mm -hmm. that um, includes the practice education research 
uh, triangle for academic um, medical centers, um, which was kind of important for the Department of Nursing and the School of Nursing collaboration. Um, and I will, you know, kind of hot off the press, let you know that we're evaluating the use of that triangle and may, um, in our uh, next iteration um, of the model, may not include that. But it will definitely include um, things like the um, the word inquiry if we don't use the word research. So the model, um, it's it's a triangular um, approach that um, includes um, the levels of evidence um, inside that model, and then then shows by arrow the focus or, um, if you will, you know, attention that we have to pay to both internal and external factors when we're asking a practice question mm -hmm. and evaluating the evidence and then taking it on to make recommendations uh, for practice change. Um, to accompany the model is a process that we call the PET process, uh, and it's you know just very three simple phases, if you will, for the um, evidence-based practice model: uh, the practice question. Uh, the evidence search and evaluation or critique, and then translation. And within each one of those, so within the practice question phase, there are guidelines that um, direct the, as I mentioned before, kind of direct the nurse to know what they need to include um, in their work about the practice question. So for example, uh, if they're putting, uh, they've asked a practice question that might um, have something to do with the medication, um, um, they would want to make sure they include a pharmacist um, on the uh, interprofessional team that they're putting together. And it kind of directs them to think about who are the stakeholders and who would need to be involved. We try also to have a physician champion on every one of our committees um, or our evidence-based practice projects. Uh, in order to get input in case, you know, it, it um, changes um, a standard of nursing care that uh, physicians may be counting on. And so we want to make sure that they're included. Um, in the evidence um, phase, we're looking at searching the evidence, um, critiquing and appraising it um, as far as level of evidence and then also the quality of that um, particular piece of evidence, so study um, uh, science versus non-scientific. Um, and then we look to synthesize the evidence at that point um, to see whether or not we have consistency um, within uh, what we have found uh, to answer the practice question, whether we have quantity of evidence, uh, and finally, what the quality of evidence is. So we use those kind of three things as we review the, um, uh, or we put together the synthesis, um, and then finally make recommendations. The T part, so of the PET process, the translation is where we develop an action plan, um, secure, um, resources and approval to move forward, uh, design, you know, how the action plan is going to um, happen, communicate, 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 of course, with uh, the staff, and, and also measure whether or not we've at least maintained our outcomes or whether we've improved outcomes. So, there, you know, there's always that concern if you change practice that uh, you don't want to, um, you know, decrease your outcomes or in any way um, hurt um, you know, patient outcomes uh, in your practice. This sounds like an excellent um, model for providers. Mm -hmm. You know, yes. I think that um, is something that I have observed when I was reviewing the different models out there. Some of them were as applicable to 
the person that's kind of down the, on the ground and working at the bedside. So it sounds like yours is very fitting for those kinds of providers to use. Mm -hmm. and, and then you have it combined with the School of Nursing. Oh, yes, yeah, which is great. Um, we also, of course, teach this model, mm -hmm. you know, um, across our programs um, in the School of Nursing. The one thing, you know, like um, I think you're, what you're describing is uh, that it's a process that's user-friendly. Mm -hmm. It's easy to implement at the point of care. But, you know, there's still lots of, um, you know, things that have to be taken into account um, in the planning, but um, we have found it to be um, very practical for that staff nurse. Excellent. Would you be able to provide us an example of a successful project that you um, have undertaken? Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I can talk a little bit um, about our first project, which um, you know now it's um, it's over ten years old. But we've um, written a, a lot about it in our um, publications, and um, and additionally, it's um, kind of a great example because not only were they able to answer a practice question that was a a, a piece of very traditionally held um, nursing practice, but um, also the results of that uh, uh, had some very positive outcomes, not only for patients, but also for the staff at Hopkins who were invited to participate in a national uh, guideline um, for uh, this particular um, question. So uh, I'll tell you that the first project that we um, did after we uh, developed the model in order to test it, so mm -hmm. I should probably mention that we tested the model um, in five projects, you know, and made, you know, a few tweaks along the way. But the first project involved our PACU staff, and it was um, based on the traditionally held um, practice uh, that we all were taught in nursing school that a patient needs to void prior to discharge from the PACU. Mm -hmm. And so um, it, you know, was, it was kind of a dissatisfier at, um, at a point in time for both nurses and for patients, and specifically in the, um, more of an ambulatory surgery um, area. So as we started to think about uh, what is the evidence for requiring a patient to void prior to uh, discharge from the PACU after surgery, um, we narrowed down, and uh, you know, it's certainly a recommendation when you're looking at, um, at um, practice questions and you know doing EBP projects that you kind of focus them and you know narrow for your evidence search. Otherwise, you know you'll get thousands and thousands of responses uh, when you put in your your um, search terms. Um, but we looked at do ambulatory adult too, I should say, for you know your pediatric um, audience. We were looking at adult ambulatory surgery patients and do they need to void prior um, to being discharged from the PACU? And if they don't, um, is there um, any kind of effect on uh, urinary retention, uh, PACU length of stay, and patient satisfaction? So we were very careful in putting together some outcomes to measure what this change in practice might might do. So we reviewed the evidence that was there um, and recommended that, in fact, um, adult ambulatory surgery patients might not, as a standard of nursing care, so meaning every single patient gets it, um, might not have to void prior to discharge from the PACU after surgery. We um, allowed uh, on an order set the physicians to check a uh, patient must void prior to to discharge um, so that that, you know, individualization sure. to a patient and what their condition um, 
was um, uh, still Type very important, exactly, and yeah. medical condition, more, you know, comor comorbidities, things like that. Um, but we uh, did a little pilot, and uh, we evaluated, uh, collect data on the urinary retention, the PACU length of stay, and patient satisfaction, and in fact, discharged some patients that um, had not voided, mm -hmm. and we did follow-up phone calls um, for the period of time that we deemed in this um, evaluation. Evaluation and uh, and had a really positive outcome with it. When the uh, PACU nurses put this together uh, as a poster presentation uh, for their ASPAN uh, meeting, uh, the national um, uh, you know, uh, specialty group, uh, they were eventually asked to participate in the development of a guideline for the um, post-anesthesia care unit um, for uh, uh, guidelines for discharge. And so they wrote that one specific piece of the guideline because they um, you know, had done this evidence search. Oh, so it was really- amazing. Oh, it is. And so you think about local work where, we, where we're uh, questioning traditional practice, you know, positive um, impact on outcomes, mm -hmm. and then uh, them disseminating, mm -hmm. so taking the poster to a, a national meeting and then being able to participate in the development of a guideline. It was It's really pretty much the the process across the continuum that you would want. So when you yeah, say a successful, successful project, it was right. definitely um, one of those. We've had many um, since then. And in fact, we maintain a website um, on the Johns Hopkins Hospital's Department of Nursing website uh, that is devoted just to um, EBP, right. and it includes you know what our model is, um, how, and and you know specific information for a nurse, a link to some online modules that we um, have for education, but also has a list of evidence-based practice projects by year with executive summaries about them, yeah. which is great for our staff because then if they're asking a practice question, they can go back and look at the website and say, oh, somebody in medicine's already looked at the evidence for this and contact them and they can add a piece to the, you know, maybe to the project. Um, tweak the question, a different population possibly, but um, it also allows them to know that, oh, nobody's really looked at this and we have a concern, and mm -hmm. so then they can post their results. It allows us also to scale, mm -hmm. scale up these projects um, when recommendations are appropriate um, for some type of a practice change. And I would imagine it allows you to follow the science over time. So, Absolutely. you know, right now you know that this is the best practice, but you know, after some years go by and mm -hmm. additional, you know, body of literature comes about, mm -hmm. you can then look at that in relation to what you found a few years back and see if you need to then change practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So oh. that's pretty amazing. It is. And it, it's yeah. and uh, obviously hard to keep up websites, mm -hmm. as you know. So um, sometimes we get a little far behind. But um, but basically, it's been a great tool uh, internally for us and then externally for others to, you know, see the work that we're um, doing. It sounds like your projects are really multidisciplinary focused. Could you provide an example of how you pull together that type of team for this kind of project? Oh, sure. And it's not easy. Um, I'll, I'll say that um, from the get-go, you know, just that uh, we have to really concentrate um, on making sure that we get um, representatives from different disciplines that are a part of the question that we're looking at, the concern for practice, uh, and get the right people on those teams. Um, but it also is important for those 
uh, questions that we involve that multidisciplinary team early on in you know defining what really is the practice question. And uh, I probably have a great example for you. Um, well, I was involved with um, a group of uh, a lactation specialist who um, had um, seen in their practice the ankyloglossia, which is tongue tie. And so you know many newborns are born, uh, and this is usually assessed and found on birth. Um, and there are many pediatricians who uh, perform something called a phrenotomy that snips mm -hmm. the tongue so that it's no longer tongue-tied, uh, and it allows the baby to latch on for breastfeeding much easier. It's not as painful for the mother. And I think there's even some evidence that says later on, um, as speech develops, that if ankyloglossia um, isn't taken care of, that there actually can be some speech problems You know, at four and five and maybe even six years old. Um, and so this uh, lactation specialist was really concerned that several of the pediatric um, practices were performing the phrenotomy um, prior to discharge of the newborn, but there were um, uh, you know, one or two that were not, and she was attempting to standardize practice and get everybody on board with this um, for you know, a baby-friendly hospital, which was um, really important in their goals. And so uh, the group of nurses uh, said, well, what's the evidence for performing uh, phrenotomy when a baby is um, assessed with ankyloglossia? And so that evidence search led to lots and lots of literature about the assessment of ankyloglossia and the tools that were out there and how to do it. And when, in fact, the team met for the first time, so the nurses were gung-ho, they searched the literature, they thought they were being very proactive, and I applaud them for it. However, when the multi-D team was pulled together, uh, the, one of the physician champions said, yeah, but you know, the physicians probably aren't interested in that part. That's your job to assess the ankyloglossia. For us, we're interested in what are the risks and benefits of sure. performing phrenotomy. And so it sent us to a whole different um, you know, search and a different piece of evidence in order to um, make the recommendation for a practice change. So, you know, so it's, it is uh, just one of those things, and it's part of our guidelines under the P of the pet mm -hmm. process practice question is to put together that multidisciplinary team, make sure you have all your stakeholders there, and that they're involved in the definition of the practice question right from the very beginning. Sure. So, what did you find out? Oh well, they yes, they uh, they're very very limited risks. Um, obviously, the benefits are there because um, and they they knew that from the phrenotomy uh, that, uh, that it would be much easier for the baby to latch on for breastfeeding and not as painful for the mother. Um, and so uh, they implemented um, the recommendation and met with uh, the Department of um, Pediatric Surgeons in order to present the evidence. They were certainly interested in our system process, how we arrived at evaluating the evidence, and it's been a really positive experience mm -hmm. for the group um, for them to see uh, this type of work that can be done you know, collaboratively by nurses and physicians and to reach a consensus. Uh, so it was it was Sounds a like great a wonderful, project. Yeah, yeah, project. And mm -hmm. um, well, thank you so much for sharing this with us today, and um, we wish you the best. Oh, thank you. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.